open up your Bibles to Proverbs 1. Proverbs 1, verse 7. We're just going to look at that verse. Um, we'll also reference later Ephesians 6 and Deuteronomy 6, which is what Matt read. Proverbs 1, verse 7. These are the words of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Let's pray. Our Father and gracious God, we give thanks to you foremost because you have granted us your word and instilled within us a fear of you. We believe what the scriptures teach, that our fear of you is the beginning of knowledge. So we start tonight with a holy adoration of your glory and ask that your Holy Spirit would teach us, that he would teach us, that he would convict us, that he would lead all of us and your church at large into the sovereign plan of you, Father. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So what should be obvious uh, so far in this series is that there is indeed a great antithesis that spans the course of history, and the two opposing ideas contain radically differing doctrines. Man in rebellion against God, and then versus man in service of God. So we have, on the one hand, man in all of his attempts to live life without submitting to Christ, without submitting to God, without submitting to the covenant, and thus without submitting to the law of God. But on the other hand, you have in this antithesis, we have man as a regenerated, recreated being who is in submission to Christ the King. This antithesis, this battle against humanism, has been the longest-running skirmish in the history of the world. When Satan tempted Adam and Eve with this idea of autonomy, the ability to literally be a law unto themselves, this historical event was the humanist seed that was planted in the soil of a man's heart. Ever since that moment, the antithesis has marched forward in history, the battle being the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. So at the core of this struggle is man's belief that divinity lies within himself. And divinity, in its purest and greatest form, finds its telos, its end, in the state. The state being the ultimate expression of the divine man. Now, in order to address the issue of education, we must start with this great antithesis itself. Christianity believes in the distinction between the creator and the creation. That's what we believe, right kids? We believe that there is a distinction between the creator and the creation. Now humanism believes in creation as being divine. So as we've talked about already, this is the oneism and the twoism view of the world. Now, because humanism is not ethically neutral, and because it is the religion of fallen man, the religion of rebellious men, it follows that in order for it to achieve anything it wants to achieve, in order for the humanist vision to achieve what it wants to achieve, it has to stay consistent with its presuppositions. So as I just mentioned, the core presupposition within this framework is the idea that divinity is within man. Now, most visibly and most powerfully, this divinity is expressed in the collective, this ultimate continuity of being, the state itself. But this isn't where it ends. Humanism, which has an eschatology, it has an eye for the future, no doubt about it, 
as well as a doctrinal strategy for achieving that future, humanism will manifest itself in the culture through law and through ethics. So know this, like no matter what worldview we're talking about, and there really only are two, right? The one is two as views. No matter what we're talking about, all worldviews manifest themselves in the world through varying degrees and varying ways. And it just so happens that humanism does manifest itself in a large way, that being status education. So deep within the statist view on education lies these words from Aristotle. I'm going to quote Aristotle a little bit. The state is, quote, the highest good of all and embraces all the rest, end quote. Don't miss this. This is much of the thinking today goes all it can be traced all the way back to Aristotle himself. So instead of the church being the polis, right, the Greek city state, instead of the church being that, which is what it's supposed to be, because remember, we're not we are we are um, we're not an outpost of an otherwise otherworldly existence. So we are occupying the land. But instead of the, the true city of God, the state becomes the center of all human life. The state touches every aspect of our lives, every aspect. As I said before, you can't even die in this country without the state being involved and getting their fair share. So because man sees himself as divine, the humanist must, sort of, must build some semblance of a foundation. And that foundation, it, as Aristotle says, it embraces all the rest. That's the state. It's this unified collectivist man. Now Aristotle, in keeping with his presuppositions, he famously stated that man is, quote, the best of animals and, quote, a political animal. He also said that the citizen should, quote, be molded to suit the form of government under which he lives. Taking it even further, Aristotle argued the following. He said, quote, neither must we suppose that any one of the citizens belongs to himself, for they all belong to the state and are each of them a part of the state, end quote. This is Aristotle, who's highly regarded in many Christian circles. Status education has been and always will be designed to communicate the following. As for me and my house, we will serve the state. It will always end there. So we must ask the obvious question then. What is this molding process Aristotle's talking about? Whereby man, this political animal, can be shaped to suit the needs of the collective. In other words, suppose one had a vision for a unified body of divinity here on this grand scale. How do you get people trained into that process? Well, the answer is very simple. Status education. Status education is the discipleship program of fallen man. That's the discipleship program. They have a clearly laid out plan for how to disciple the nations. They have a great commission. They're achieving a collective vision of divinity, and they have a strategy, they have discipleship programs, and they have it all thought through. It is the humanist strategy to achieve the salvation of man. That's what it is. So education, then, is the Messiah, and the state is the God that she obeys. That's what we're up against. And what we have here in America right now began with this pagan thinking 200 years ago. As Jordan mentioned earlier, Horace Mann. Horace Mann was born May 4th, 1796, and he is considered to be the chief architect behind the common or public school system. 
He was a Congregationalist minister. Man labored as a Unitarian under the banner of natural law. That was the big discussion. Natural law, that is this prevailing idea that nature gives man certain rights. Nature being sort of this obscure... Um, some Christians would argue, well, that's God. That's who we mean as God. But clearly there's a delineation to be made. So nature gives rights. Ask a police officer where your rights come from. Ask the sheriff. You know, where do our, ask anybody, where do our rights come from? Well, if they're bold enough, they'll say the state gives us rights. If, if they're semi-intuitive, they might say, well, nature gives us rights, and they sort of beat that drum. But a man who considered himself a Christian, Horace Mann was more akin to a religious pluralist. He saw some value in the Bible, but because he started from the wrong premise, he gave himself over to humanism and thus socialism. So Mann, Mann believed that nature, capital N, gives everyone, quote, an absolute right to an education. An absolute right to an education. Paging Bernie Sanders. <laughs> this entitlement patter is nothing more than socialism. It's the belief that the state must give things for free because nature says so. For Horace Mann, knowledge shouldn't begin with the fear of the Lord, as the text before us says, but instead knowledge is dispensed through the means of the state. The first chairman of the first state board of education ever in Massachusetts, sorry, brothers, man argued that in order to truly have a free society, the republic needed moral people, needed intelligent people to perpetuate its existence. They don't want chaos, so they have to educate people into this statist ideology. There has to be some order and some sort of boundaries for the discipleship program. State Govern education was believed to be the cure-all. It was the cure-all for society's ails. For, for man, he argued as much. If, if we don't have education, we'll end up with the French Revolution, which was fresh in the minds of many of them. In his own, in his own words, man said this, quote, the common school is the greatest discovery ever made by man, end quote. The greatest discovery by man. Like, really, that's what you picked? I mean, I could think of a lot of other things. The iPhone's better than that. I mean, come on. Ironically, for all the hoopla about the common school, man could not escape the fact that what he was proposing was an alternative way to be saved, another rival religious system. Sure, he believed the Bible should be used as a means to promote general morality, of course, but he rejected God's law altogether, and thus he rejected the notion that one needed to start with, with the Bible in order to know anything. See, education was simply the collectivist means of perpetuating the collectivist vision, a divine state who usurps God, usurps the Bible, and does its own thing. For Horace Mann, natural law took supremacy over biblical law. Natural law took supremacy over biblical law. See, Calvin's doctrine of total depravity gives man their proper place in the world under God. If, if, we, if we, we are black coffee drinking Calvinists here, we, we enjoy Calvin, we are reformed in all sense of the word, and we would argue even more so than some senses of the word. But we believe in total depravity. We believe that man is, is in every possible way polluted by sin before he's regenerated. 
So that doctrine, though, isn't just sort of a fun doctrine we talk about and, oh, aren't we so depraved? And no, we, we balance that with God's grace and all that. But, but that doctrine gives us a proper footing underneath the authority of God. It doesn't usurp God and thus assert its own man's authority. It's underneath God. So Horace Mann, he rejected the notion, this notion, because natural law works in conjunction with man. Natural law is great because you can sort of bend it into whatever you want it to be. It's very pliable. Education is thus seen as a means of working with man because man's basic nature is one of innocence. See, total depravity says that a man or a woman or a child has sinned against God. That's total depravity. We've sinned against God. We're depraved. Without His grace, we're nothing. But Unitarian natural law, which is perpetuated by many of the, the Congregationalists, the, Uni, the Unitarians of, of New England 200 years ago, natural law says that man is broken and simply needs the education. He needs the education of the collective. So therefore, man's not a sinner. He's basically good, so they say. This shift in thinking about education comes in because students are seen as people with a, quote, right to an education instead of people that have a responsibility of obedience before God. No one talks about that. See, it flips this doctrine, this Calvinistic doctrine on its head. Man is not totally depraved. Man is now free to explore himself in the collective without the repercussions of having to submit to God as an individual as he explores God's world. See, as Rush Juni, he pointed it out somewhere, I don't remember where, but public, public education will always produce statism and anarchy. Will always produce that. Public education will always produce statism and anarchy. Because who controls the school? The state. They are creating people in their own image. They have a system for that. Now, anarchy and statism are the same thing. They're both defections from God and his holy law. Let's look at our text again. I just want to pull some things out for you. First, our Proverbs 1.7 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord, the fear of Yahweh, in your Bible it should have all capital letters. That's God's name. The fear of the name, the fear of Yahweh, is the beginning of what? Knowledge. It's the beginning of knowledge. So anytime you read Proverbs, you have to go with the second sentence, because it helps explain the first sentence. It doesn't matter where you go in the book of Proverbs, it's going to tell you that. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Along with this text is Proverbs 9.10. It says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. You can also go in Proverbs to chapter 15, verse 33. It says, the fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom. And before honor comes humility. One more verse. We love Psalm 110 around here. Psalm 110, verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding of all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. You see, from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible affirms that knowledge, wisdom, maturity, and understanding can only come from God. It can only come from God. The first and controlling principle, as Derek Kidner puts it, is our relationship to God. 
So when the text says that it's the beginning, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, it doesn't mean that you start there and then you leave, leave it behind as you go. You don't, that's the way Christians treat this whole public school discussion. Oh, well, we'll, we'll, we'll have them go in their Sunday morning class and they'll color a picture of Adam and Eve and that will suffice to combat the indoctrination they receive eight hours a day, you know, half the year. That's the, that's the, the stupidity of the modern evangelical when it comes to this discussion. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning, meaning it's the first in controlling principle. The first principle of anybody pursuing the proper knowledge of God and his world, the proper knowledge of anything, whether it's maturity in your own life or understanding and discernment, the first principle is a worshiping submission, a fear of God, the God of the covenant, the God whose name is Yahweh. So knowledge and wisdom and understanding, therefore, in its fullest sense, is a relationship with this covenant God that is entirely dependent upon him. So when dealing with the, the issue of public school education, particularly the socialistic version of it, whether it's just, you know, regular basic education or the socialist version of, of the common school, we have to start with this presupposition in Proverbs 1 verse 7. Since education is the process of bringing someone knowledge, and, and since the Bible says it starts with God, then it follows that all attempts at education that do not start with a holy fear of God are thus completely and entirely invalid. I want to say that again. Since education is the process of bringing someone knowledge, and since the Bible says that it starts with God, then it follows that all attempts at education, all attempts at education that do not start with God and a holy fear of him are thus completely and entirely invalid. I don't think we could be any clearer. They are all rival claims to divinity and truth. That's just what they are. What Proverbs makes clear in this text and what the Bible says in places like Deuteronomy 6 about the training of children um, and Ephesians 6, same thing about fathers not provoking your children to anger but raising, you know, teaching them and so on and so forth. What the Bible makes clear is that knowledge, discipline, training and understanding begins with God and is given through the means of God's covenantal institutions. There's a, there's a pattern here. Knowledge begins with God, but it doesn't just start there. The journey itself is governed by God. See, education, education simply means the impartation of knowledge, the impartation of knowledge, and thus it is an inescapably religious undertaking. You, you, you've heard it all the time. Oh, my, my school is neutral on religious things. We're neutral as they bow to the sky cloth. <laughs> We're neutral. It's impossible, right? We know that. That's like the first principle of Reformed theology. There's no neutrality anywhere on this planet. There's no neutrality, not even in education. So that is a lie or something. It's always a, it's always a religious undertaking. And the religious presuppositions that we bring to the discussion prove where our convictions lie. And it's either on the, on the side of Christ and his word, or it's on the side of the humanist and their word. And I fear that most Christians today 
are on the wrong side of the discussion. It's a very heated debacle. I'm sure that you have family, friends, and people that you disagree with on this issue. It's very hard to have the discussion. It gets heated. Up until the 1830s, American education was Christian. Christian. Altogether, ins and out, Christian. It centered on the institutions of the family, the institution of the church, and therefore it was out of the hands of the state, completely and entirely. See, because of the influence of Calvinism, the, the Puritans and the pilgrims, they came and what did they do? They built houses and taught their children. You know what they didn't bring with them? A school board. They didn't bring a school board along. They didn't arrive and start building education centers. Why? Because education was a family affair. That's because these people, they understood that education belonged to the parents. It belonged to the parents with the assistance of the church, the body of Christ. Training a child started with the fear of the Lord, right? Reading began with reading the Bible. And it all ended with the same. From start to finish, education was the responsibility of the family. And thus, a family was free under God to see to it however they wished. Um, a friend of ours, Dr. Joel McDermott, he points out in his book, Restoring America, that, that the way education was carried out before the 1830s was pretty simple. You even had tutors and specialists competing to assist the family. And, and you see it today in the homeschool movement. You know, check out our science curriculum. It's this, that, and the other. And then we have this other company that's working. And they have this Bible curriculum that's this, that, and the other. And people are competing. That's why, well, that's what a free market system is. A non-status education, that's what it should look like. But Horace Mann and others like him weren't satisfied. They needed some way to express their collectivist ideology and the conception of the common school was the vehicle to do just that. You see, in order to jump on the collectivist train, there had to be a system for paying for it. There had to be a system for paying for it. The connection between socialism and the public school, all of this system lies in, in this basic fact, property tax, property tax. Land ownership, when's the last time you've heard a sermon on land ownership? Land ownership, which is a biblical concept because God own, owns the land, not the state, became something that the collectivist statists, with their humanist education vision, that they needed to possess this stuff. In the socialist scheme, no one but the state owns land. The, quote, greater good, and you hear Hillary Clinton, apparently rumors she's going to run again in two years. That's going to be like a reality show. People like her, they'll say things that, you know, you got to pay your fair share for the greater good, the common good. These are expressions of humanist thinking and collectivist thinking. See, this greater good becomes, takes precedent over individual liberty. So in order to pay for the collectivist schooling system, what had to happen? Well, taxes had to be levied against landowners. I got a call uh, last week. And they've called several times, and I keep telling them to stop it, but they don't listen. And I don't know where they're from. I think they're all over the state of Virginia, but they're asking for money and donations to help pay for police officers. So you've had potentially um, 
We have the local band knocking at our door. They need money for their program. You have uh, people raising funds for police officers. And I don't know exactly what it was. I don't know if it was sort of like, you know, funds for helping a family if a police officer died or something like that. There was a, a few things. But like, I, I'm just sitting there thinking, are you serious? Like, that's how it should be to begin with, is they should be trying to raise money without taxing us to death. But here we are asking, there, there are people who actually think that we can be taxed into prosperity. So they're asking for more money to fund an education system. And that's always the issue, right? It's always more money. If the schools had enough money, boy, they could do a lot of stuff. And then you go to Texas and you see they spend like $30 million on a football stadium. This is the absurdity of the whole system. It's an absurd system. You've heard it said probably taxes are what we pay to live in a free, civilized society. Or you may even trigger someone and they'll ask the question, well, how are we going to have roads? How are we going to have schools? How are we going to pay for these things? You've heard it all. This type of thing, you should know, has, has always been said. And in this nation, this, those types of things were said 200 years ago. You know, don't tell me, this is the idea of man and others that were pushing this common school thing. Don't tell me that you care about children when you aren't willing to pay a little taxes for the greater good. That was the rhetoric 200 years ago. This thinking prevailed then, and it's still with us now. See, the problem comes in when we think that education is an institution. Education is not an institution. It's not. The public school system is not an it, but a they. There are people behind these socialistic schemes, and there are people who hate liberty under God and want more and more funding for their socialist programs. Just ask our friend Bernie, who wants to fund college for free. How in the world do you do that? You tax people to death. See, the core problem with the question of education lies in the fact that Christians have simply given over their responsibilities to the state when the state simply does not have the jurisdiction. This blurring of the lines of jurisdiction is exactly why we're in the mess we are in. The Bible does not give the government permission to educate people. It doesn't. The magistrate is given the sword of justice and nothing else. And until Christians wake up and read their Bibles, this type of nonsense is only going to get worse. Nothing, listen, nothing frustrates me more than the card-carrying NRA member who totes his MAGA hat and yells freedom all the time, all the while insisting on public school education. It's absurd. It's nonsense. It's schizophrenic garbage. And how can Christians possibly believe that teaching knowledge apart from fearing God will produce anything other than death and destruction? How? We're, we're, we're talking about the doctrine of sanctification here, whether we know it or not. And the collectivist state has a doctrine of sanctification. Sanctification 
listen, will either be in terms of the Holy Spirit and the outworking of God's law in every area of life, or sanctification will be in terms of Aristotle. Man is the political animal. He's remade into the image of the state. He's a servant of the state by the means of status education. Those are your options. Those are the doctrinal differences before us. That's the antithesis. What sanctification do you want? And we live in a time when education is heavily financed through theft, because it's, because it's seen as society's savior and as sanctifier, and thus providing social salvation. Instead of that, though, it's produced decay. You've seen it before. How else do you explain the aftermath of a school shooting? You've seen the interviews. You've seen the people. What do they do? They cry out to their Lord and Savior to do something. They cry out to their Lord and Savior, the state, to do something. What solutions are out there for drugs and guns and all these things? What solutions are out there? What does everybody say? Education. Promiscuity. What do we need? Education. We have to educate. We have to educate better. We have to educate people so that they know that this is wrong or this is right. We have to educate, educate this, educate that. Regulation this, regulation that. None dare suggest in the public square that the Christian faith actually has solutions, especially in the realm of education. See, make no mistake, status, status education itself is the discipleship program for humanism. And on top of this, there are doctrinal concerns for this religious program. And what we do not need is prayer back in status education centers, right? We do not want prayer in government schools. We want schools to be abolished. Amen. That's what we want. And you see, when the, when the state, this is just basic like economics 101. When the state controls something, it creates a mo monopoly. When the monopoly is created, competition is squelched, right? So when competition is reduced, what happens? Quality goes way downhill. And when quality goes downhill, what do you get? America. That's what you get. See, this and that's economics for any realm. It doesn't matter what it is. The entire humanist program is a disaster. The matter of government school education, honestly, it's easily settled if we can agree that the Bible has something to say about the lordship of Christ in the realm of education. It's easily settled. Does Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, care about education? He does. Does he care about the means of how that happens? Absolutely. But we have this schizophrenic, evangelicalistic thinking that says, yeah, Jesus is Lord, but he doesn't have anything to say about property taxes and education and collectivist thinking. He has nothing to say about that. Friends, we are in dire despair on this issue. And the Bible, Jesus does have a lot to say, right? The reality is the battle, of the battle for the future, the battle for the future is always going to be connected to our understanding of the family. The church, ch churches will always be apathetic and irrelevant as long as the family is entrenched in humanism. It's just, it's all it's gonna produce. And that's what we have today. And families will be broken up into atomistic pieces as long as education is believed to be neutral. The core of the humanist agenda is the problem of collectivism. And I, and I point you to a friend of ours, Bojidar Marinov, 
his Axe to the Root podcast, he just did one, I think last week it came out, and you have to listen to it on this issue of collectivism. See, education is a gospel issue. It's a gospel issue because Christ didn't die so that we could pursue knowledge apart from him in his plan for the world. He didn't die for that. If the church will not divorce herself from the collectivist schemes of humanism, the future here in the West is quite bleak. So dear parents, to encourage all of you, teach your children and do not be dismayed. It's hard work, we know this, but it's the work that we're called to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for giving us your Son, in whom the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found. We confess for the past, that for the past 200 years, we have as a nation sought to replace the fear and knowledge of you with the humanist knowledge, one, on, one that's built on autonomy instead of theonomy. We have trampled your law, we have perpetuated injustice, and we have destroyed our children and, and all of it in the name of the public school. We ask for your forgiveness, Father, through your Son, and ask that your Spirit would awaken and embolden your true church to fight against the nonsense. Teach us as we fear you, Lord. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.